0: Good morning, Hiawatha Church. Uh, on behalf of the overseers, your pastors here at Hiawatha, we want you to know we miss you and we love you uh, deeply. And while it's very hard for us not to gather uh, this Easter morning, where we cannot sing and celebrate and take communion and sit under the word preached and fellowship together physically this Easter, in a very real way, we actually celebrate Easter every single Sunday we gather Every Sunday, we preach, we sing, we declare, we demonstrate the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and his resurrection for us. So the first Sunday that we are able to gather together physically will be an Easter celebration. And the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that. So while this year, Hiawatha Church, we celebrate Easter virtually, it will not always be like this. And we will celebrate our risen Savior in the empty tomb, both in person and we pray soon and regularly. So happy Easter, and welcome again to our Easter service. Uh, My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here at Hiawatha Church. We want to welcome you, like Leah said earlier, especially if you are a visitor, if you are a friend or a family member of someone who attends here, or if you're just checking our church out uh, virtually. If maybe the, the past few weeks of uncertainty and craziness that our world and our city has gone through. Maybe it's brought deep questions uh, to you and you've been thinking about the, the point of suffering or about the meaning of life or about life and death. And if that's you, we want to welcome you. Welcome to our church. And like Leah said, Hiawatha Church is a safe place, a safe place for people to come with questions, come with doubts, and come with your hurts. And if you're a skeptic, if you think that a man claiming to be God who was just executed by the state, to come back to life again, never to die again, if you think that that idea is strange or unlikely or even unbelievable, you're in good company. In fact, the characters in our passage that we're about to read this morning were in the same boat. This morning we're going to read from a passage from the book of Mark. So Mark uh as well as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four uh, biographies about Jesus. Essentially, his, his, uh, they tell about the story of his life and his ministry, his miracles, and ultimately his death and, and his resurrection. We're gonna be reading from Mark today. And at the very end of the book of Mark, we're going to see uh, a couple of women, a few women on Easter morning going to Jesus's tomb. And even though Jesus taught uh, many times, that he would be raised from the grave, none of his 12 disciples were there Easter morning. They weren't there on the third day with their watches or their calendars saying, it's the third day, he's supposed to be coming out right now. And neither do these first few women that come. They come to the tomb in order to embalm him and to anoint his corpse. So none of Jesus's followers were anticipating and waiting for Jesus to come back to life. Even though they spent years as Jesus's friends, and followers, and disciples, even though they heard him again and again predict that he would die and he would be raised after three days, they still didn't think he would do it, or they forgot. They too were skeptics. They too didn't believe. They too thought it was unbelievable and unlikely. So if that's you today, you're in good company. Even those those that's spent years with Jesus even those that saw Jesus perform miracles and even raise others from the dead his closest friends his 12 disciples were nowhere to be found on easter morning so this morning we're going to be reading from the end of the gospel of mark the very uh, last part of chapter 16 or chapter 16 the very last uh, section of the gospel of mark starting in verse 1 going through uh, the verse verse 7. So if you want to follow along, it also be on your screen if you're looking on Facebook. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And this man said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the first thing we learn from this resurrection passage here in Mark is despite how unlikely it was or how it had never happened before in human history, Jesus really has been risen from the grave. The woman coming, expecting to find a corpse that they can anoint, but instead, they arrive and they see that the, the uh, rock has been moved away and that the tomb is empty. And where Jesus' body was laid, was laid there is nothing there anymore. The tomb was empty. Jesus was gone. He has been raised from the grave. And it is with this claim that the world's largest religion was born. What we see here in Mark 16 is that this resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It's real. It really did happen. The Easter story isn't just about figurative or or symbolic resurrection. It's a real resurrection, and it really did happen. As we saw in our passage here today, this this man that's uh, in white, an angelic messenger, tells them, hey, you were there. You saw that Jesus was killed. You know that he was put in this tomb, and a huge rock was rolled in front of it. But go look, the tomb is empty. Go look where we laid his body. It is gone. You are looking for this Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. Go look at the place where they laid him. And it's not just the Gospel of Mark that describes narratively Jesus's resurrection. In fact, like I said, all four uh, biographical accounts of Jesus's life, often called the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all describe this same event. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. It's missing a dead body And the characters being skeptical and astounded. And the Bible over and over declares that this event truly happened. Both in the four Gospels, like I said, all throughout the rest of the New Testament, describes this event and assumes that it happened and talks about what it means for us. As well as all throughout the Old Testament, many prophecies about the Messiah, about the Son of God, about Jesus and what he would do and what uh, his death and resurrection would accomplish. And not only do the biblical authors write about the resurrection, but many eyewitness accounts of the risen Jesus are named. Many of the people who actually saw Jesus, and there were hundreds of them after his resurrection, who saw him and spoke to him and touched him. They are named in the New Testament. And as the New Testament was being recorded, as the books of the New Testament were being written and circulated all over the ancient world, these named eyewitnesses were still alive. So skeptics and authorities and soldiers and enemies of Christianity could go and find these eyewitnesses and ask them, did you really see the resurrected Jesus? They could go to Mary and Mary and Salome and Peter and the other disciples and say, you're named here in this book saying that Jesus really did rise from the grave. Is that true? And they proclaimed that it was, that they had seen with their eyes, they had spoken to him, they had touched his body, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And even still, many people think that these gospel accounts and the New Testament in general is just a myth it's made up. It's a story created to, pers- to persuade foolish, ignorant people to follow some, some new set of rules and some dead rabbi and his message. Well, is that the case? Is what the New Testament authors wrote, is it clean and persuasive, like you'd expect to find if a handful of guys got together and spun a web of lies to mislead thousands? Is that what we find when we read the Gospels and the New Testament? Well, if that were the case, if it was just a myth created by a bunch of people in order to mislead thousands, if it were made up, the authors sure did a poor job of doing so. At the very least, what we do read is not what we would expect if this were myth, if this were made up. And what do we mean by that? Let's just look at three quick examples right here from Mark. The first is that uh, Mark describes what really happened. Three women were the first uh, witnesses. At the empty tomb, and Mark's report that women were the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection was courageous for him to do as an author, since the testimony of women in, in the first century and in these cultures, Roman and Jewish cultures, were not the, the testimonies of women were not always given credence, and especially in the court of law. And then in verse eight, the last verse of Mark that we didn't even read, what it what it says, the the book of Mark ends with. And these women were terrified. They said nothing because they were, they were afraid. And so the Gospel of Mark ends with, the, with this greatest, the greatest message ever, and it ends with these women not doing what the angel told them to do, but ends with them being afraid. So if this was made up, why would you end the story like that? And then other examples include the disciples just looking like fools. In the, rec- the recorded narrative accounts, Matthew Mark Luke and John we see the disciples who later become the leaders of Christ, or the Christian church we see them looking like fools and cowards including the author of Mark who earlier in this earlier in this book when Jesus is getting arrested in the garden he's running away from the soldiers and the soldier grabs his clothes and Mark rip or, uh, the, the soldier rips the clothes off of Mark's body and what we see is uh, recorded in Mark is that Mark runs away into the night, not protecting Jesus, running away from the soldiers naked. So if that were true, if, if, if that wasn't true, why would the author of this book write such an embarrassing uh, description of what happened? So kind of just back up. So if you were starting a religion, if you were making up a story that you hoped would deceive thousands and thousands of people into following you, in your new religion, you wouldn't, one, make the first eyewitness eyewitnesses people who culturally their testimony would not be credible to the authorities or to those you were trying to persuade, it would be credible to them. You If you were making this up, you wouldn't then make these same eyewitnesses look unreliable and weak because they don't do what the supernatural angel told them to do. And if you were making and starting up a new religion, you wouldn't make the authors of these accounts, as well as the leaders that all the new Christians should follow, you wouldn't make these leaders look like fools and cowards. But not only does the Bible teach that the empty tomb and Jesus's physical resurrection did in fact happen, and not only do the Bible, uh, uh, um, not only do the biblical texts not seem to be written as if they were just made up myths, but there's also historical reasons to think that the tomb really was empty, that Jesus really was raised from the dead, and hundreds of people saw him and spoke to him and touched him. Let's look at a few of these historical reasons. Even if you don't trust the Bible, let's just look at at what happened in the ancient world in the first century. First, the empty tomb. And there's just no good objections to why the tomb was empty. And Jesus physically appearing to hundreds and hundreds of people over a period of 40 days. And of course, there's theories. But honestly, with all due respect, these objections to the resurrection of Jesus are just really weak. They're not persuasive at all. And that's that's actually probably what our blog is going to be later on this week. So if this interests you, you can look for that on Wednesday. But the empty tomb is, is one of the greatest uh, apologetics are persuasive historical events that uh, gives credibility to the gospel, to the fact that Jesus really did physically raise from the dead. The second historical thing we see is the disciples changed lives. The disciples went from being fearful cowards who abandoned Jesus, who denied Jesus publicly, and then something happened. And then the rest of their lives, they are unrecognizable from the disciples we read about in the gospel accounts, we uh, pick we we pick it up in Acts four. So just a few weeks after Jesus's resurrection, these same guys—Peter, if you know Peter's story at all—he denied Jesus three times. He ran away uh, when um, the the soldiers were arresting Jesus. He was terrified and a coward. And now, just a few weeks later, after something happened, listen how Peter's described in Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the authorities, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, another disciple, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The 12 disciples, as well as Jesus' many other disciples besides the 12, were willing to go through persecution, suffering, imprisonment, Torture, and even execution and death. The resurrection has changed them from terrified cowards to fearless martyrs. And you might say, "Well, yeah, people uh, take lies to their deathbeds. People live double lives. People will deceive others all the way to their death." What's so different about the disciples? But why do people do that? Why do people live double lives or keep secrets or or lie? for their whole life. They do it because they're getting something out of it. What they get out of it is better than having to live a lie. They get wealth or power or comfort. But not the disciples, though. If we know anything about their lives historically, they spent their lives not in power, in wealth, nor comfort, but serving the poor, the hurting, and the sick. Not to mention, like we said, they went through persecution and suffering and imprisonment and tortured, and many, many of them were martyred, were executed, were killed because of following this risen Jesus. But it isn't just the 12 disciples who had changed lives that gives support to the fact that Jesus really did raise from the grave, but also worship changed for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of first century Jews and Gentiles. Their worship of God Completely changed. They no longer worshiped on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, because Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, and he was raised on Sunday. So they changed their day of worship. They didn't worship at the temple through a priest with an animal sacrifice anymore because Jesus had fulfilled all of those things. Gentiles are now fully included in the faith. And now the the two new sacraments that the church focuses on are pictures of Jesus' death and resurrection, communion, and baptism. In these thousands and thousands of first century men and women now worshipped a man, or at least someone who was fully man and also fully God, or what looked to be a man to all the authorities and the skeptics out there. And if you know anything about uh, the religion of the Jewish people, it's uh, probably you don't worship a human being. You only worship God. But thousands and thousands of these first century Jews and Gentiles risked everything because they believed Jesus really did raise from the grave. By worshiping this way, they were risking excommunication from their families. They were risking being kicked out of their religion and out of their ethnic culture. They were risking even capital punishment from the Jewish religious leaders. But most importantly, each one of these Disciples of Jesus were risking their eternal souls. They're risking going to hell because they're worshiping now a false God or they're not listening to the one true God. They're not worshiping now through the temple anymore or on the Sabbath or through priests or through the sacrificial system. But something happened where thousands and thousands of first century Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, started worshiping what people thought was just a man. Just a teacher, just a rabbi. Christians believe that not only did Jesus die for them, but he was also literally and physically resurrected from the grave, never to die again. And in fact, the New Testament, later on in the Bible, they make it so clear, they say that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians were still in our sin, we're still under God's wrath, we're still guilty. Our faith and we should be the most pitied people on the face of the earth. If the resurrection isn't true, Christianity crumbles. But the Bible teaches this is true. The women showed up to the tomb and it was empty. Jesus was written or was risen, and while it is hard for many to believe, it is the best explanation biblically and historically of what happened. The second main thing we see here in our Mark passage is that the angel reminds the women and uh, in turn us and the disciples that Jesus had told them that this was going to happen, that he would die and that he would be raised from the grave. So the second really important thing we have to see here in the resurrection account in Mark 16 is that Jesus's death was not an accident. It was his plan. Jesus' death and resurrection was his mission. It's what he left heaven and came into the world to do. Verse 7, the angel reminds us of, of this. The angel tells these women, he says, But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There, you will see him, just as he told you. And all throughout Mark, Jesus makes it clear, this is his plan. He needs to die he needs to die in a certain way in a certain place at a certain time it is his plan it is his mission and over and over and over again he makes clear what his mission is to anyone who will listen even going so far as to try to keep people from from telling other people who who he really is Until it's the right time for him to die. In fact, in the first chapter of Mark, the very first chapter, we see Jesus three times tell different people, don't tell others who I am. Uh, A person and a couple of demons and a few different uh, circumstances, three different times Jesus says, okay, you recognize, you know who I am because of my miraculous divine power here, the way I'm teaching with authority, but don't tell anyone. It's the beginning of my ministry. I have to do much more yet. I, I cannot die yet. I cannot be crucified yet. Jesus knew his mission. He knew he came to die and when and where he must die. It was his mission, and he was dead set on dying on the cross outside of Jerusalem at the right time. But we also know it was Jesus' uh, plan. Because he told his disciples over and over and over again. It's recorded in Mark five different times that Jesus told his disciples, I need to die. I'm going to die. And I will be raised on the third day. And here in the resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled his predictions that he not only would die at the hands of the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders, but that he would raise from the grave. But even though Jesus' actions, his predictions, his words made it very clear that his mission was to die on the cross for the sins of the world, many people, including many of his disciples, just couldn't believe it. How can the mission of God in human flesh be to die a torturous death? Why would being executed, why would that be Jesus' plan? Isn't Jesus coming into the world just as a teacher for us? To give us a new law like Moses, or to be a new example for us, or to be a miracle worker, or a demon caster-outer. Wasn't Jesus the God-sent king that the whole Old Testament prophesied about that would come in and defeat the Roman oppressors that were oppressing Israel at the time? So they thought. we might think too, how can death be his plan A? His death must have been an accident, right? How could the greatest injustice the world has ever seen, perfect, innocent God being crucified among criminals in an unjust trial, how could that have been a part of God's plan, right? But Jesus himself and the entire Bible, they just don't leave us with that option to think as if God's Hands were handcuffed, and he wanted to do something else but couldn't. And even when Jesus' hands are tied up as he's getting arrested, we know uh, from the surrounding story that it's pretty ridiculous that these soldiers think that they can bind the divine Son of God. And just in case it isn't convincing us yet that Jesus' death wasn't an accident, even if you need more than his actions and his predictions. And his declarations at the cross and the empty tomb were his plan A, that they were his mission and what he was trying to do. Let me show you 13 other passages in the Bible. We're going to fly through 13 other passages where the Bible makes it clear that Jesus's mission was to die for the sins of the world and to be raised three days later to bring life to all those who would trust in him, both physical and and spiritual life as well as temporal and eternal Life. So why did why why did Jesus come? What was his mission? Did he only come as a new rabbi or only as a miracle worker? Was he just a prophet or just a teacher or just an example for us? All of which are very common beliefs and popular to hear today. Why did Jesus come? Well, let me tell you that the Bible declared to us why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, Luke nineteen ten. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1 21. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world, John 1 29. Jesus came to give eternal life, John three, sixteen. Jesus came to redeem those who were enslaved to sin. Romans three twenty-four. Jesus came to reconcile all things to himself and to make peace through his blood shed on a cross. Romans Colossians 1.20, Jesus came to heal us by taking our sins onto himself on the cross, giving us the power to live holy lives, 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus came to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus came to reconcile us to our creator through the cross, Ephesians 2.16. Jesus came to save the world through faith in him, John 3.17. Jesus came to make us holy faultless and blameless before our creator. Colossians 1.22. Jesus came to take the punishment we deserved because of our rebellion so that we might have peace with God. This God we've been rebelling against. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. Jesus Christ came into the world to be the savior of the world. 1 John 4.14. Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he took on flesh. He added humanity to his divinity and came into this world to live the perfect life that we could never live. To die in our place, the death that humanity deserved because of rebellion and our sin against God. And in his resurrection, he was vindicated and defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death. Happy Easter, Hiawatha Church. We've seen so far how the tomb and how Jesus' resurrection is not just a myth or positive thinking, that it actually truly did happen. And we've also seen so far this morning how it was Jesus' plan the entire time. Jesus' mission was to die on a cross in our place for our sins. And though he tasted death, he spit it out in victory as he was raised physically and victoriously on the third day. So what does this resurrection mean for us? How does it affect my life? Not just for eternity, but for today. Why is this important? Maybe it did happen. Who cares? You might be wondering, why should I care about this? Or how is this good news? Let's look at a few things. What does the resurrection mean for us? The first thing it means is that Jesus is trustworthy. He claimed to be truly God and truly man. And he promised this world that he would die, but come back to life, victorious, validating his claims, improving his infinite love for us. He might, have, he might have sounded crazy for a while. In fact, his biological family thought he was crazy. Before his death and resurrection, they didn't believe him. But like C.S. Lewis so famously argued, Jesus was either a madman who actually thought he was God, or he was a manipulating liar who knew the truth about himself but still deceived everyone or he was really who he said he was. Jesus is trustworthy. The empty tomb proves and vindicates him as the resurrected, all-powerful, divine son of God. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, you can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and claim him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being uh, a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. But the resurrection isn't only a proof that Jesus is God and that he is trustworthy, although it for sure is that. We can trust Jesus. But the resurrection accomplishes countless, innumerable benefits and gifts for those who are trusting in that, trusting in his death and resurrection for them. So let me list off just a few, although each one of these could be an entire sermon. Now, through Jesus's death and resurrection, And us putting our full trust and faith in what Jesus has done for us. We are united to Christ in his resurrection, Romans 6. We're raised with Christ, Colossians 2 and 3. We receive the Holy Spirit. The third person, the Trinity, lives within us. If we trust and believe in Christ, 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 5 Now we're also co-heirs and adopted sons and daughters into God's family, Romans 8. Now forgiveness for our sins, everything that we've done is possible, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 4. And we could go on and on and on. In fact, that's a huge part about what the rest of the Bible does. So after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then there's Acts, and then after that, it's a series of letters, written to churches, filled with people just like you and me, unpacking and describing all the benefits and what uh, Jesus' death and resurrection really means, what it means for us. The New Testament goes on and on and on describing the significance, the importance and the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection doesn't stop there, although these gifts and benefits are priceless. But now, For so many of us who, due to the coronavirus pandemic, now more than ever are thinking about death, are facing death, and are even experiencing death, Jesus' resurrection means one more thing for us. It means victory over death. In the resurrection, Jesus has defeated our enemies of sin, which is the poison wrapped around our DNA and our hearts, our, our constant desire for self-worship and our enemies of death, the, the where sin leads to, the consequence of that, the curse that we're all under because of our slavery to sin. In the resurrection, though, Jesus has defeated those great enemies of sin and death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 speaks of this. It says, Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so Jesus became human, added humanity to his divinity, so that through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. This is true for those of us who believe in Jesus, those of us who are not relying on our own strength, our own good deeds, our own works, our own names, our own bank accounts, our own relationships, our own resumes, but for those who only rely on Jesus's perfect life, on what He did for us, this is true for us: that Jesus's resurrection defeated sin and. Death. While we all die, those in Christ will rise like he did. We will rise again in, in a physical and eternal life, in physical bodies, in a new perfected earth to live with our Savior in paradise forever. This is what the resurrection means to those who have trusted in Christ alone. Tim Keller, who's an author and a pastor in Manhattan, in New York City, writes this. He says, sometimes... People approach me and they say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christianity. I like this part of the Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept this other part. I usually respond, Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. That is how the first hearers felt who heard reports of the resurrection, they knew that if it were true, it meant we can't live our lives in every way we want. It also means that we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, not COVID-19, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Right now, for the entire world, including our city and our homes, Uncertainty and death rule. These two great enemies are reigning over our lives right now. Yet the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, give us not just wishful thinking, but actual hope. Real and true victory. Right now, our lives are plagued by uncertainty, not knowing our future, not knowing what will happen. But through the gospel, we now know our future. We now know what will happen if and when we die. We now know that there is a sovereign and good and loving God in control. And even though a few aspects of our life might be uncertain right now, we can have great trust and certainty knowing who God is and who we are in relation to him and what our future means. Our lives are plagued by death right now. But the gospel defeats that. The gospel answers that in, in real and true ways with hope, not just wishful thinking. Jesus has defeated death. If we die today or tomorrow or in 10 years, we know that we will rise again just like Christ was raised physically. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us, reminds us of this and unpacks it. And even in Christian theology, our death leads to life. Our death Dying to our old sinful self leads to us being resurrected spiritually with Christ, becoming a new creation. And through Jesus' resurrection and trusting in that eternal and physical life are given, are gifted. The New Testament talks about Jesus' resurrection being a prototype, a first fruits of our own. So if we want to know what our future looks like, we look to the risen Jesus Christ, we look to his body and his resurrection. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Again, Tim Keller reminds us that resurrection is not just consolation. It's not just wishful thinking, but resurrection is actually restoration. For Christians, we get it all back. The love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable, unimaginable degrees of glory and joy strength. This is the gospel. Jesus' death in our place and his victorious resurrection is good news, not just for these three women, not just for the first audience, but it is good news for you and for me and for our entire world right now. The physical health, the vaccine against death, the, the safety and protection that we all long for right now, it's given in an infinite in greater way than we ever could imagine through the gospel. Now through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can receive not just temporal health, but eternal health. Not just physical health, but spiritual health. Not just relief from fear, anxiety, and depression, but the removal of fear, anxiety, and depression, both now and in some ways and forever completely in eternity. Not just being saved from this particular virus or disease eventually to one day die from something else. But the gospel gives us hope of being saved from death itself. So out of this message, out of Mark 16, let us worship. Let us worship our God and our Savior who who died the death that we deserved so that we could live. Let us worship. Let us celebrate this Easter and let us thank God for his goodness, for his loving faithfulness, for his compassion and mercy and grace towards us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you that you give us enough information to believe, to understand that the tomb was empty and and what your son's death and resurrection means for us. We pray as a church, you would help us to believe this today. Give us great hope. Help us to see our greatest enemy, our greatest problem, and see how you have solved that and defeated our greatest enemy through the cross and empty tomb. So give us great hope and joy this morning. And like these first three women, these first three witnesses of the empty tomb, let us go and tell. Go and tell each other over and over again and go and tell everyone else who hasn't heard yet that the tomb really is empty and what that means for us, for life here right now and life for eternity as well. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us to hell and back, and that we get to receive the the spoils of war, the victory, uh, the trophies of, of your great victory. Uh, we get to receive that just by putting our faith in you, just by trusting in you and not ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for Easter morning. Pray this in your powerful, victorious, resurrected, saving name. Amen.